Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we get to answer your Bible questions. You know, we can't answer them if you don't send them. So if you have a Bible question, send it our way, email it to us, lineuponline at iiw.org. I am John Bradshaw. With me, Wes Peppers. Great to have you here. Thanks, Pastor John. Always good to be here. Hey, so, I mean, why do you do this? You You know, know, I've studied with the Bible with many people for many years, and one of the great joys I find is when they get the answer they're looking for from the Bible and their eyes just light up. There's a sparkle there and their heart jumps and it draws them closer to Christ. So one man believes one way, one man believes another, one woman believes one thing, one Does it matter? Well, I think it does. God Why? Has, yeah, well, God Why can't you just leave them, leave them people happy believing what they believe? Why can't you do that? Well, they may be happy, but they're not going to be biblical and right. And so, you know, John tells us that, that God delights when we walk in the truth. Yeah. And so understanding the truth is a truth that sets us free. And we can live happy but ignorant and not in the truth, and we want to be free from error. And so the beauty of the Bible is that it speaks truth to us, and we want to we want people to experience Christ, and Christ is the Word, and it, and it changes lives. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. me, that's the most powerful thing. You want to draw as close to the heart of God as you possibly can. Absolutely. Live in a way that pleases Him, mm-hmm. uh, walk in the light. Aaron that's asks right. us a question that uh, I think you can shed some light on. Sure. question is simple. Are we born sinners? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, and, and it's been a debated question yeah. for many centuries. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so, you know, the Bible very clearly teaches that we are born with sinful human natures, that we are bent towards sin, yes. that we are, uh, you know, we have the tendency to sin. But sin, when you look at what all the Bible says about it, is a choice. It's not something that we're forced to do. There's no sin that you've ever committed that the devil made you do. Now, probably every sin you've ever committed, the devil tempted you to do. That's right. But you've chosen to do that. And so our wills are the power of choice. God has given us the power of choice. We don't have to choose sin, but we are bent to do that. Now, when we were created in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had unfallen human nature, which means they had the full capacity that God had given them, and they were not driven or pulled towards sin. They had no inclination towards it. But we, since the fall of humanity, have had that. Mm -hmm. And so, but God gives us a great tool. He gives us his grace. Yes. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. And so we can be restored back into that. And we can resist sin in the power of God, not in our own power, but in his power. So are we born sinners? No, we're born with a sinful nature. We choose to sin, and that's when we become sinners. Amen. Let's just move on. There's nothing to add to that question. Uh, answer it's a long answer, probably. <laughs> Extra- no, extraordinarily well done, and we- why add to that? Shelley asks, who are the captives that were raised up when Jesus ascended, and why were they considered captives? The Bible says that he led a multitude of captives captive. Who were these people um, when this happened, can you tell me, please? Sure. 
You know, the Bible tells us in uh, the Gospels that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, there was a great earthquake, and a number of the saints who had fallen asleep rose up with him. They went into the city, and they spoke to the people in the city and was telling them about things of God. When Jesus ascended into heaven, those people went with him. And so that's, uh, you know, the Bible's not, it doesn't go into great detail about this, but it does give us that clue. Uh, so those captives were people who were captive in the grave. Jesus brought them forth, and then they ascended into heaven with him. Yeah, amen. All right. Why well, I did that to you? You're, you're pretty you're, simple. You're burning it up today. All right. Uh, Peter asks, at the resurrection we're changed and receive incorruption and immortality. So why do we have to eat from the tree of life to sustain life like Adam and Eve did? You know, Wes, here's what I think. Here's what I think the Bible teaches us. That, immor- that immortality... You do not want to make a Freudian slip like that. The immortality that we receive when Jesus comes back and confers immortality upon us is still conditional immortality. Yes, yes. The, the life we have is still in Christ. Our life extended to us now. I mean, to a degree, we have immortality now by faith. Mm-hmm. But when we have immortality, it's still, it's still, it's not independent of God. We can't say to God, listen, we're, I'm done. I'm leaving you. I'm rebelling, going my own way and retain that immortality. That's right. So eating from the tree of life is a reminder that we are still dependent on God for life and for health and for strength and all of that, even though we have been given the gift in reality, the one that we receive now by faith of uh, everlasting life. If people were to sin again in heaven, which the Bible says it won't happen, happen, but if, then that process would be repeated. There would be death that would be brought forth from that, so we are reminded that uh, our dependence upon Christ, that's the only way to have life and obedience to him. Cheryl asks us this. It's from uh, Deuteronomy twelve fifteen. She's asking about, um, about that verse, wanting us to explain it. It deals with the eating of unclean meat. Here's what it says as she writes. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it of the gazelle and the deer alike. Mm. Yeah, that seems like it could be tricky, but I think it's it's not. It's not. It it seems. It could seem that way, but it's not. Because for one thing, the food source mentioned is the gazelle and the deer. That's right. And that's... That's clean meat. Yes. So what's, what's, what's this verse getting at? So I think the key is right towards the end, right before that it says the clean. Well, let's back up. You may slaughter and eat meat within your gates, whatever your heart desires. Now, that would naturally mean we would have to take the secondary principle of clean and unclean. So whatever my heart desires, that is clean. That's right. But secondly, it says, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he's given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it. It's not saying that you can eat unclean food. It's saying those that are clean and unclean may eat of the food that's being offered there. And then he says the gazelle and the deer. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not describing here the permission to eat unclean foods. It's basically saying those things that are clean can be eaten. Yeah, and the people who were clean Correct. ceremonially. That's right. Or ceremonially unclean. That's right. Could eat of that food. Correct. Yeah. There we go. Uh, so that gets us to a question asked by Philip. Why do some people say that Jesus turned water into grape juice when the Bible says he turned it into wine? Yeah, that's a really good question. The answer is absolutely straightforward. It all depends on your definition of that word wine. 
Now, when I say to you, Philip, would you like a wine? You have every reason to believe that what I'm offering you is alcoholic, a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Rhine Riesling, a, a I don't know, whatever it might be. Uh, we say wine, we think booze, right? Yes. Now, in the Bible, the word is translated wine, whether it refers to alcohol or juice, something alcoholic or non-alcoholic. It's the same word used, oinos in the, in the Greek, yayin in the Hebrew. Very, very infrequently, if ever at all, it says, and Jesus enjoyed some juice. It would just say wine. So the context is going to decide uh, whether we're dealing with something alcoholic or non-alcoholic. It's a wedding feast. It's the end of the wedding feast. There's 125 people there, let's say. That's what scholars reckon would have been at a wedding like that. And Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into wine. Ask yourself, was that liquor or was that juice? What are you thinking? Now, someone whose culture is to drink wine and enjoy wine is going to say, well, that would be wine, surely. Mm -hmm. But someone who's read the Bible, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 to 35, it's a lengthy passage, and alcohol consumption is absolutely negatively per, uh, um, per something. In Proverbs 31, verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink, and we remember God has made us kings and priests. That's right. So it's not for us. What do you add to that? It, it, it's juice. I, I got asked this recently myself. Hey, I heard you talk about Jesus turning water into juice, but it says wine, and that's because wine and juice are the same thing. Well, a couple of things. It's very powerful that, you know, you mentioned 150 gallons. Well, where do we get that? That's John chapter 2. It says there were six water pots containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So if you take the middle number, 25, that's 150. Now, that's 150 gallons of wine for about 150, maybe 200 people. That's after they had already drunk the other wine that was gone. That was a lot. So if all of that wine was alcoholic, those people would already be staggering drunk and then here's Jesus adding to that more alcoholic wine. I just can't see that in the character of Jesus. No. Now, the other thing you ask is, what is alcoholic wine? Well, it's fermented grape juice. Well, what exactly does that mean? Very simply, it's rotten. There's rotten grape juice. The grape juice begins to break down, and as it does that, it releases those gases that give the intoxifying effect. So does it make sense that Jesus would create anything rotten. Well, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so, therefore, it has to be fresh wine that he's uh, turning from water. There is really no other explanation. You know what hangs people up is the, the governor of the feast says, you've saved the best till last. Wow, the best. Now, you ask me, because I, I haven't drunk alcohol in decades. Mm-hmm. You ask me, the best, I'd say, oh, yeah, the best. As someone who's drunk a bit of wine in his time, The best I ever had was, I really think it was from Mendocino County in California. It was not alcoholic. Mm -hmm. It was staggeringly good. Mm. Just this past weekend, I was in in a certain place, and they left me a bottle of red grape juice. It was a whiny bottle with a cork Mm -hmm. in the top. I popped that cork out and drank some of that. I wish it was great. That's right. I never had a Cabernet Merlot as well. No. Never had a Merlot as good as this. Sure. It was drop dead fantastic. 
But we say, oh, it's the best, best wine. It had to be alcohol. Doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, I hope you'll be my friend. But I'm not here for that purpose. I'm here to help you understand the will of God. If you say, I understand God's against drinking wine, and I'm going to drink it anyway, that's one thing. But if you say, oh, I think God's okay with drinking wine, you've got to think again. Alcohol is responsible for suicide. Domestic violence. I'd love for you you look up the stats and try to find out how much domestic violence is related to alcohol. Rape. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with sexual assault and domestic violence? Are you comfortable with that? No, you're not. Alcohol fuels tons of it. It ruins minds. It destroys careers. It is a ruinous, ruinous substance. Now, I know some little wine drinker isn't happy with me right now. I mean, I'd rather you were happy with me, but I don't care. Because what you need to do is think, read what the Bible says, and understand something about this. If you want to be complicit in this massive scheme causing enormous damage in society, that's up to you. From a spiritual perspective, from a physical perspective, from a cultural and societal perspective, I can have nothing to do with it. And I want to tell you this. When you choose not to drink alcohol, you are not worse off. You don't appear less sophisticated. Your friends won't look down their nose at you. If they do, move on. You don't need them. But they won't because people understand it's a choice these days. Some people do. Some people don't. Um, there's no good reason that you have to drink alcohol. This just not. But I like it. There's a thousand things you like that you don't do because it falls outside the will of God. So I would just encourage you, particularly Christians, have mercy. This isn't something that you need in your life. It's not the will of God. Leave it behind. Save the money. Save your dignity. Save your witness before others. And uh, get on God's program. Did I make that clear? I think you made it clear. Okay. Well, if I I didn't, send me another question about it. I'll take another round on it next time. Speaking of next time, we'll be back in just a moment with more of your questions. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Standing on a railroad station platform in a small town in South Australia, General Douglas MacArthur uttered some of history's most famous words when he boldly declared, I shall return. Having escaped the ferocity of the Japanese military, MacArthur promised to return to the Philippines and bring liberty to people captive in their own country with little hope of freedom. 2,000 years before, Jesus made the same promise to a captive world when he assured people from every age that I will come again and receive you unto myself. The return of Jesus to the world is a major theme of the Bible. But what does the Bible really teach about the return of Jesus? And how can you be ready for that awesome day? Don't miss I Shall Return on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. If you have a question for us, we'd love to receive it. Uh, Best way for you to get that to us is by emailing us. 
line upon line at IIW.org. Line upon line at IIW.org. All right, Pastor Wes, Simon asks, Can you explain what it means that Abraham died and was gathered to his people in Genesis 25 and verse 8? I heard a pastor explain that it meant his soul had departed to some place where his fathers were. What do you think? Well, I don't want to have any disrespect for that pastor, but I doubt that he quoted a Bible verse when he said the soul was departed up into heaven. He may have, but if he did, it was likely misquoted. And so there are a number of passages that will, will explain this, and that's the general principle for any Bible verse that doesn't seem clear. You look for the context or another verse that will explain that meaning. And so... You know, there's a number of verses I'm looking at here. Genesis 25, verse 8, that's the uh, verse that he asked about. It says that he was gathered to his people. Sometimes that meant they they would gather the people together before they died, but then sometimes it's referring to the death. They would be gathered to their other family members that were already buried. Here's Genesis 35, 29. Speaking of Isaac, it says he breathed his last and died at the ripe old age, joining his ancestors in death. Yeah, there you go. Another, and then it says they he was buried. No mention of going to heaven there. Genesis forty nine twenty nine, same thing. Jacob said, "Soon I will die and join my ancestors. Bury me with my father and grandfather in the cave of Ephron." And so he was buried there with them. Acts thirteen thirty six. Speaking of King David. David, when he had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. So the Bible is very clear about this. That little phrase just simply means that they died and they were laid to rest with their ancestors who had died before them wherever they were buried. Amen. Miranda writes, If vicarious philae dei is supposed to add up to 666 in Roman numerals, is the you supposed to be of the same value as the V? A great question. We're talking about one of the identifying marks of the Antichrist, um, and you can catch one of our Editors Written programs to go in depth there. Uh, have you ever been to the Covert Hoves? The Covert Hoves. Have you ever seen that on a courthouse? C-O-V-R-T-H-O-V-S-E. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The U is a modern V. That's really all it is. The U is a modern V. Uh, v. So when you're looking at vicarious philae dei and you're looking at the numerical values of those letters, the D is worth 500 and the C is worth 100, the V is worth 5, the U is worth 5 as well because same letter. There you go. The U and the V, essentially the same letter. A U is a modern V and over time it's taken on a slightly different role in the English language. What's fascinating about this, if you go back and look at some of the letters that used to be used in language. Quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. Some of the sounds that we used to have that were represented by this or that, and they've since been uh, moved out of the English language. The language has changed over time, and that's why the U and the V are given the same numerical value in that phrase, vicarious philae dei, which means the vicar of the Son of God, or one who stands in the place of the Son of God. All right. Here's Albert. And Albert asks... I mean, I don't mean to sit in judgment on any of the questions, sure, but a thinking question. Absolutely. In Revelation 4 and 5, the thrones are shared by the Father and the Son, but you don't see the Spirit. Why isn't the Holy Spirit featured in these scenes? Uh, that's a great question. Sometimes the Bible will 
portray these types of scenes, and it may not mention a certain detail like the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean his presence wasn't there. That's correct. And so there are other places in the book of Revelation where the Holy Spirit is very present in those same types of scenarios where it's displaying the authority or the power or the sovereignty of God. So when you look all through Scripture, you see the use of the, the, the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see that in creation. You see that in various places in the Gospels at the baptism of Jesus. There was the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus being baptized, the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon Jesus. Uh, and so there are just multiple examples there. In John chapter 16, where Jesus is explaining the function of the Holy Spirit. When he, the Spirit of truth, is the Spirit come, of truth has he come. He will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. And so over and over again, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person, as a part of the Godhead, as having divine attributes. And so it is, we believe, very firmly the Bible teaches that that Trinity or Godhead, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, we understand that, sure. but the concept is very much there. So just because, again, just to reiterate, because in that particular place the Bible may not specifically mention it, doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Yeah. The Spirit of God isn't um, depicted as being on a throne there, and there's a reason why. Jesus came to live this world and demonstrate to us who the Father is. The Spirit of God doesn't assume the same role as the Father. They have different roles, and the Spirit's role is to lead us to and to glorify the Father and the Son. Now, you may say that's a tertiary role, a subordinate role. Oh, I wouldn't think so. Divine, divine, divine. It's all divine. But you understand they have different roles, and so the Spirit isn't depicted as reigning on a throne. That's not His role. You've identified very clearly that he is a member of the Godhead. That's correct. Different role, different function. Don't let that throw you. Someone's going to say, see, he's not really God because he's not on a throne. You don't have to be fooled by that. The Spirit of God has different roles than the Father and the Son. Okay, I have a question for you. This is a fascinating one. Gladys asks, in Judges 11, Jephthah promised to offer whatever came out of his house as a burnt offering to the Lord. And his daughter came out. I assume he sacrificed her, but isn't that an abomination to God? Now, I have a view on that that may, may differ from the view of some. You want me to go first? Well, I'll you let you go, go first. I want to hear about that. All right. That may just answer the question straight up. Uh, it may reveal me as being in disagreement with you. I don't know. We'll see. Let's find out. All right. So we'll look at the story of, of Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dancers. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. We're in Judges 11, and that's verse 34. Came to pass when he saw her, he rent his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low and so forth. I can't go back. I've, I've vowed a vow to the Lord. She said, My father, if you've opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to that which proceeds out of your mouth, for as much as the Lord has taken vengeance for thee of your enemies, even the children of Ammon. Jephthah had been a very successful judge in Israel before the time of the kings. She said, But let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. Not not that she was unmarried. She wasn't bewailing that. 
but bewailing the fact that she would never be married. You understand? Yes. He said, go, sent her away for two months. She went with her companions. They bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. This, the fact that she had lost the opportunity to be a mother, to be a wife. Came to pass at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow, which he vowed. And she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jeff, the Gileadite, four days in a year. I don't think he sacrificed her. Mm-hmm. Right. I agree with that. I think the sacrifice was she's going to be dedicated to the Lord, not that you can't be married, and she was never going to be married. I know what he said. Uh, the passage is ambiguous. If you disagree with me, you disagree with me. We can still be friends. I don't think he sacrificed her. I don't think you jumped off the cliff of heresy there. Yeah, okay. I think you're all right. Yeah. Thank you for that. (laughs) I think she, because the the stress here is they bewailed her virginity. Yes. And uh, and she never knew a man. That seems to be her lot in life, Mm -hmm. rather than living that more mainstream existence that a girl growing up in that time would expect to. I don't think he sacrificed him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's many ways to offer something or yourself to the Lord. No, notice so, in Romans 12. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. sacrifice. That's the burnt offering that's being that's right. It doesn't mean you're, you're literally physically doing that, but spiritually you're letting your life be led by God and surrendered to God. So there are different ways to uh, understand how one would give themselves to the Lord, sacrifice to the Lord in that way. Yeah. Jephthah, what Jephthah did, he was, was foolish. Mm-hmm. He made a rash oh, yeah. vow. First yeah. thing I see, first thing I see. Now, I don't know, but I think it would have been okay for him to say, yeah, but not my kids, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but not my kids. And I think he kind of did do that. Yeah, I'm not sacrificing my child, but I did make a vow. So therefore, something's going to happen here. And her life was therefore uh, given in a certain way that perhaps she served God or I don't know. And, you know, it's a, it's a good sermon on impulsiveness. Yeah. <laughs> Impulsive oh, yeah. speaking and actions. And we want to be careful about that and, and think things through because, you know, you make a vow to the Lord. And, uh, you know, I think it's important. It's important. It's important. Something that shouldn't be done rashly or hastily. But you could think about it and do it with uh, a lot of prayer and searching the scripture yeah. and making yeah. sure you're doing it in the right way. We've got time for a quick question, and I think this is okay. Candace asks, in Matthew 24, 21, it says, Pray your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. I understand winter because it's cold, but does it mean that we're not to leave our house on Sabbath to flee? Please help me to understand. No. Jesus was looking forward to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, Pray that it doesn't happen in winter or on the Sabbath day. In winter, because, well, that, that just would have been dreadful. You'd be, you'd be stuck and confined, and you wouldn't be able to escape easily. The snow would be heavy, perhaps, and so forth. On the Sabbath day, because you're at worship. You're not geared up to flee. You don't want to be fleeing on the Sabbath. That, 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 that's not the way to spend the, the Sabbath hours with God. But, but be that as it may, you're going to be sitting ducks. You're not going to be prepared to flee. You, 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 what are you going to do? Be very, very difficult to flee on the Sabbath. Perhaps you're at the synagogue. You'd be taken unawares. Anything to add to that? No, I think you covered that. You just, uh, you know, it's common sense. And, you know, it shows, in my estimation, how important the Sabbath is to God that uh, we can even pray that certain events would be influenced by... That's uh, right. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that's very important as well. So Outstanding. Yeah. Hey, great one. Great questions. We thank you for them. We hope you'll uh, join us next time for more. We love doing this and hope that you are blessed by it. 
He's Wes Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw, reminding you to email us your questions at lineuponline at iiw.org. This has been Line Upon Line.